Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. Thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and our warrior. This is 106.5 FM Los Angeles. 102.3 FM Riverside. And 105.0 AM. Palm Springs. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. I'm Al Warren. Mr. John Copenhaver is in the room. Hey, Al. How you doing? I'm I'm just wonderful. I'm not I'm not convinced. There's something in your tone that's telling me it may not be as wonderful as you pretend. <laughs> <laughs> well, it never is. Hey, but the YouTube channel is just about to break ten thousand people. So that is amazing. Yeah. yeah, I just put it out. It's just brand new, and it was just uh, seventy five hundred. Now it's at ten. You know, it's like ten away from ten thousand. So that's just really bizarre. Yeah, well, so much of um, I feel like people are living in that and, and getting information and entertainment in that space more than ever. Yeah, it's crazy. I got to start making up some conspiracies or something. <laughs> Get some some really wild stuff going on. Oh God, don't do that. <laughs> we don't need more of that. <laughs> Good content. <laughs> Good content. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. sure. <laughs> well, we're certainly trying. Okay, so let's see. Now we've got a Lambda Literary Award winning author, Miss Anne Aptaker. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Hi, Alan. Hi, John. Guys, nice to see you guys again. Likewise. Yeah. So what's going on? So you're, are, are you in Paris at the moment? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not in Paris now. I will be uh, next month, but I'm, I'm not at the moment. I'm stateside. <laughs> oh, poor, poor, poor Anne. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gee. <laughs> when you're in Paris, but, you know, it's, that's an interesting point. When you're over there, mm. how do you find the um, the writing world there? Like, how do you find it? Is it similar to what's going on in the U.S.? In a way, I suppose. I mean, I, I, my French is not nearly good enough to say that I'm plugged into the writing world there. 
Uh, so I can't really answer your question with any authority. Does it seem to be as festive? Like if you if you go out, is there? Yeah, I would have to say. Yeah, I would have to say that. As far as I know, um, yes. Um, I think that's just true of writers generally. Um, we tend to. Well, let's put it this way: most of the writers that I know, even stateside, are crime and mystery fiction writers. And I've met people at various conventions who are romance writers and sci-fi writers and, you know, the other genres, literary writers and so on. And to tell you the honest truth, the crime fiction writers are the most fun. We really know how to party. I, I don't know why that is. The other group that I really enjoy, with, uh, enjoy being with are the horror writers, even though I don't write horror and don't read a lot of horror. But there's something about the crime writers and the horror writers, since we write outside of, uh, um, you know, acceptable social circumstances, we write about murder and mayhem and horrible deaths and so on. Maybe we get it out of our system on the page. So um, we we tend to just celebrate and party in, in ways that other writers I don't want to say they don't, but we're just more festive about it. But I think all writers, to some degree, especially when we're together at conferences and so on, um, or readings, I think writers, because we write, we so, you know, our profession is so isolate, when we get together, we just, you know, blow it out. Right, right. <laughs> we just have a good well, time. And I, that, I believe that's internationally true. Crime writers and horror writers drink a lot. Yeah, uh, literary yes, they writers do. drink a plenty, too. <laughs> yeah, but they're, they're more sophisticated about it. I think there's it, a little more know. anxiety. Yeah. I don't know if they're more sophisticated about it. Um, there's a little more anxiety, I think, in, you know, when you're hanging out with literary writers. Because it is, I mean... I mean, this is very competitive, right? Um, it's writing, no matter what you're doing, it's competitive, but particularly literary writing can be. It's, that can create a kind of anxiety that, um, it's unfortunate, you know, there's a lot of lovely literary writers, I know, but it does come into play. Do you find, John, do you find that, that liter, that the so-called literary fiction writers still look down on genre fiction, even though a lot of genre fiction is now part of the American canon? Uh, and I'm speaking, of course, of, um, uh, you know, James M. Cain and the Golden Age crime writers, which are now part of the canon and are actually taught in college curricula. But do the literary writers still look down on us, genre fiction writers? I think that um, it, it I think that is definitely was true for a while. And I think it is changing. Um, but with, you know, as anything changes, you know, it, people's opinions don't change. So, you know, I think that, I mean, I guess it's just, it, it, it depends would be my answer, but uh, it certainly, you know, I don't find that true in my close connections. Mm, good. Yeah. In the MFA program, I n never, as anyone, um, expressed anything like that to me. So, you know, I do think there's some mutual misunderstandings of what, I think there's sometimes the crime writers think that they're looked down upon even when they're not. And I think sometimes, you know, that can be, that can play into, uh, you know, not moving things forward. But I think things are changing. We're kind of understanding, like, that these genres are essentially, you know, it, they're just they're just sort of conventions. They're not really, you know, high or low, right? Right, yeah. I mean, because anybody who would look down their nose at someone, say, like Shirley Jackson, is just illiterate to begin with. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> She's marvelous. One of my favorites, all-time favorites. Absolutely. 
They do it. They do it behind your back. <laughs> <laughs> or you know, or Dorothy. That's the only polite way to do it. <laughs> you know, or Dorothy B. Yeah. Hughes. I mean, these these women were, in, were some of the best crime writers, and now they they are getting there, and have been for a while getting the respect that that they deserve as um, really superior writers in in English speaking letters. Yeah, absolutely. Before we talk about your new book, I was going to also bring up that um, with. LGBTQ writing and crime, but more more the first. Uh, stateside with book bans and all this sort of stuff going on, mm. d- does this sort of worry you as an author somewhat? Yeah, it scares the living hell out of me, I, absolutely. Yeah, I just read an article in, I think it was The Nation. It might have been The Guardian, but it, I believe it was The Nation. Um, about a terrible book banning uh, effort which was succeeding in closing down or possibly closing down a whole library in Dayton, Washington. Um, who, uh, the, the people there, are, you know, a faction, not all of the people certainly, but a faction of the population of the town objected to uh, LGBTQ content in books as well as, uh, um, uh, you know, social justice issues and so on. But they were particularly incensed at LGBTQ content in books. Uh, and uh, while they didn't succeed in shutting down the library, they did succeed in having LGBTQ book content uh, books uh, removed from uh, the, the uh, young people section and have them in sort of inaccessible places now, even in the adult section. And they they may even succeed in having the material, you know, removed altogether. Um, so, yes, it's terrifying. These these reactionary forces are shoving down censorship down the throats of the rest of the country when is statistically the rest of the country is against these kinds of bannings. But it's absolutely terrifying. I mean, let's face it, it's a fascist effort. Uh, to my way of thinking. And I think we need to be on guard, not only as writers, but as Americans. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. To stand very firm against the banning of books, so say I. <laughs> yeah, well, no, it's, it's disturbing in the sense. I, I sort of thought we were past all of this myself. I sort of thought this was kind of a done deal. We weren't going to go back to all of the things you see going on now. I'm I'm sort of more in a state of shock that they're they're actually being aggressive about it and actually succeeding in some some areas. So um, I don't know. It's 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 a strange time. Well, they're yeah. succeeding because they're led. The legislatures in some of these places have changed the laws to now allow a single individual to object to a book or a series of books or so on uh, that in turn then uh, forces the library or the school or the bookstore to remove the content, whereas in the past, one single individual couldn't say, I don't like this book, so no one's allowed to read it. Um, but now they're passing laws in some of these places that a single individual can essentially put a publisher or a bookstore out of business or have a library closed. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that it, there, the, the process by which you remove a book, it needs to be um, changed so that the first thing you do isn't to remove the book when someone objects to it. That, you know, that you, ha- you have to go through a, a, a certain, like, process before the book is removed, what's happening is that um, w- without even sort of any real evidence, just an objection, mm-hmm. uh, it can be a nine mm-hmm. book, you know, has LGBTQ content. Mm-hmm. Or and it's not just LGBTQ, no, it's, not, it's yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. But I think that um, it, that's certainly a big focus. Um, and then it's, it gets removed, and then the hard process is getting it back right. on the shelf. Mm-hmm. And I just, I think about, it's a quote that came across before, a Ray Bradbury quote, um, where he talks about there's many ways to burn a book, and, you know, lots of people are holding a match, Mm -hmm. and it just feels like book burning. It just, it's a way of doing it, but it feels like book, and you're right, it's fascist. It's just, you know, there's no other, you know, way around it. 
Um, it's not protecting children. It's not about No, it that. isn't. It's no. not about that. Yeah. Because no one in their right mind, uh, you know, no parent, no librarian, no teacher in their right mind is going to offer to a very young child a book about sexuality. I mean, of course not. So these people who are raising objections about how these books are grooming and so on, grooming children to be sexual or gay or what have you, um, is nonsense. Uh, you know, and, and no librarian who's trained in library content and literary content is going to expose a child to this kind of material, no, nor is any teacher or parent. So their argument by, you know, the, the right wing's argument went right away is specious. Right. And even if they did, and it's not, it may be confusing for the child, it's certainly not going to them gay. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, we're talking here about exposing a child who's like, you know, in kindergarten or in elementary school. Children, you know, it might oh, yeah. be in the YA section, the youth section for children who are, say, 12, 13, 14 years old, whose sexuality is developing naturally to begin with. And so they would understand such material. But no one in their right mind is going to, you know, offer a child who's six or seven or eight a, you know, a book about developing sexuality. I mean, they wouldn't even understand it at that age. It's like, what <laughs> it's is this? Reading <laughs> it's, like, it's like, they'll all go, eh, you know, that doesn't look like fun. I want to go play ball. You know, I mean, these people's argument is so yeah. frighteningly stupid. Uh, and the rest of us are subjected to it, whether you're gay or not. You know, the rest of humanity is subjected to these people's whims because legislatures are giving them the power to do so, to override the majority, actually. Yeah, it's crazy. And what about um, you being a crime writer and that, um, you know, the publishers and people that have rights to older books, like Ag Agatha Christie, for instance, editing and mm -hmm. changing some of the content yeah. because they don't like certain language and certain things. I'm sort of not necessarily happy with that either. I'd, I'd rather no, have I'm it not the way either. it was, you know? I don't... Yeah, there was this controversy, what was it, last year or so, that they yeah. were they wanted to excise uh, some, some of the more objectionable uh, paragraphs from Roald Dahl's books. Um, and they really are objectionable in, by today's standards. They, you know, and even by his own day's standards, you know, he, he really had some yeah. sort of bias problems. Um, but the idea of, of removing, changing his works, that's ridiculous. You can read it and you can stick out your tongue and go, Ugh, that's no longer acceptable. But you don't just shut the man up. And I think that's. And in the classroom, it's a great chance to have a conversation and give. Absolutely. Context and explain this is not good. This is here's some reasons why it wasn't good. Like you know, um, it, it it just it feels like a great point of education. You know. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that I think John, you've made an excellent point. Is that better? The material should be out there so that students can then discuss it and learn. Absolutely. If you don't, you're erasing the past, and that's right. You know. As people, we've been erased, so we know that people's lives. Yeah, really. There's some really good work, and then you're altering the work. Yeah. You know, it, that makes no sense to me. It's better to talk about the work and understand where the person was coming from, their environment, and what was going on. I think that's a better, like John said, it's a better way of, of educating someone than to, uh, you know, edit it and have it all, you know, made pure so it sounds really good. Like, you know. And, you know, and you're, this brings up a, a point related to 
um, my own work in that I write historical fiction, historical crime fiction, and things were different then. You know, uh, the Cantor Gold series is in the 1950s and the new book is in the late 19th century, and attitudes were different then. So when I write from about those periods, I have to write the reality of that social environment, which isn't necessarily acceptable today, but if I if I cleaned it up, so to speak, um, in the books at the, for the, you know, that take place at those times, it would be, it would be a lie. It wouldn't be an accurate depiction of what things were like then and how people thought and what people said. Yeah, it takes away the realism. Yeah, it, it does. And it, 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 and to, and to John's point is, uh, you know, as far as teaching tools, uh, right, it, it, it shows the reader whether they're, you know, students or adults, it shows the reader that times were different and we've worked hard to bring that from then to now, um, that the characters that, we, that I write about who were having to face biases of the 1950s or the 19th century, um, they struggled and fought to get past those biases so that we can have this discussion on the radio now, without a knock on our door, hopefully. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, that's why I stay hidden. That's why you're in Canada. <laughs> I'm in the fascist state. Of Canada, so, you know, they they hang out at the door. They just come in anytime. You know. Well, I, you know, I always find it interesting, but history because um, you have to write from that realism. Like you're you're talking about New York City in your new book, mm-hmm. um, A Crime of Secrets. Mm-hmm. Now. This is the uh, Donner and Longstreet Mystery Book One. Now, mm-hmm. this takes place in New York City, 1899. Right. So, if, but if you didn't go back to that time and make the dialogue correct, make the attitudes correct, make the way that people behaved around each other correct, the, the, uh, for me, it would just I would just be bored and kind of go, well, you know, if they're starting to talk like they do in 2023, it would be kind of pointless for me i mean because part of part of isn't part of this is the big question isn't part of your book a learning experience for a reader too well i think yes but uh but to the larger sense let me well let me put it this way in this in the most direct sense to the book yes it's a learning experience about what life was like in new york city at that time um for uh this lesbian couple for a woman who was a prostitute um, for uh, and her son, uh, who lives in poverty um, through no fault of his own. Um, uh, so yes, it's a learning experience for the reader of what oppression, 19th century oppression, was like, um, and what certain elements of society were suffering. It also it discusses immigrant immigrant issues and so on. So yes, it is a learning experience for the reader uh, specifically to that time and place. But to the larger point, I think all books are learning experiences for the reader because books take the reader to places where they don't live. Um, it doesn't matter whether they're reading a crime novel or a sci-fi or a particular sci-fi um, or a romance novel. Uh, you're, you're being taken into um, a social situation that you don't live in, meeting people that are not like the neighbors down the block, uh, so you're learning about other people's emotional lives. In historical fiction, that's doubly true because you're learning about um, 
the way people survived in times previous to, to yours, to ours. So all in all, I would hope that when readers read A Crime of Secrets, they come away with not only a thrilling mystery story and a page turner, but an understanding and an emotional experience of life in the big city of New York uh, in that, at that time, that it was thrilling on the one hand and difficult on the other, it was glamorous for some and just gut-wrenching for others. Uh, but it's a crime story, it's a mystery, it's a page-turner. I hope to take you on a thrilling ride. Do you, do you start with the characters? Is this kind of like you've created this couple and you develop the characters completely and then put them into the setting of New York, 1899? Or did you kind of have the idea of this is where and when you wanted to tell the story and then you develop characters? You know, in this case, it well, both. It was actually both. I had these characters, and they lived in 1899. Um, uh, I, I love the history of New York City. I'm a New York native, and the history of my city is extraordinary. So my Cantor Gold books and now the new Donner Longstreet, The Crime of Secrets, um, explore that history. So when I came up with these two characters, with Donner, you know, Finn Donner and Devorah Longstreet, I knew right away that they were late 19th century characters because I wanted to have the experience of these two people in uh, uh, turn of the 19th, 20th century New York, which I find a fascinating time. The end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century is to me a very, very interesting time. It's the ending of sort of the old industrial world and the, and the entrance of an upcoming technological world. And we see that also reflected to a certain extent in the book. Did you like living back then? Did I like living back then? <laughs> that's some deep research. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that, yeah. Was some, that was some rather deep research. Yes, I, you know, I perfected, I, I, I got in touch with my good friend H.G. Wells and we went and <laughs> jumped into his time machine and went back and walked the, the 19th century streets of New York. In a way, I did walk the 19th century streets of New York, uh, first of all, by research, lots and lots and lots of research, but also because in New York, there are still some 19th century streets and, of course, you know, museum ex uh, exhibitions and so on and, and visual cues. But there are, New York is an interesting city in that you can find spots in the city where when you look up at the buildings, and, of course, in New York, you're always looking up at buildings. You can find layers of the city's history. You can see 18th century buildings with 19th century buildings rising above it, 20th century buildings rising above that, and now 21st century buildings rising above that. And there are spots in the city where you can see those layers literally in the same view. So, uh, yes, I did go back to 19th century New York and walk those streets. There are still some cobblestone streets in the furthest reaches of downtown New York. And there I was. <laughs> <laughs> there you were, you know. Now, you're also, this is a lesbian couple. Now, mm -hmm. when, you, when you talk about a couple, uh, a gay couple back in that time, how do you go about, let's say, finding out how a gay couple would live back then and i mean not only just you know publicly how they how they would have to hide it i guess or only certain people would know i guess there would be a lot of hiding but also is a relationship between a gay couple 
the same in 1899 as it is in 2023? At, ba- at base, on you know, as far as their innermost selves, yes, it's the same. They love each other, and that hasn't changed in thousands of years. So, yes, that relationship is the same. The outward manifestations have changed um, in um, sort of material ways in that people dress differently now and so on. It was much more of a binary, uh, you know, there was butch femme. It was much more of a binary kind of, um, um, of, of expression in the LGBTQ world. Um, so in, in some ways it is different. As far as the hiding, this couple does not hide, and they pay the price for it. Uh, but no, they don't hide. Um, I don't like to write about uh, gay people who hide. I, uh, and I, I want them to, you know, to stand up to the law that oppresses them. Um, and they do. And they, you know, they're all willing. They, they're, they know it's a risk, but they take that risk. Um, and in this particular case of Finn Donner and Dvorah Longstreet, you couldn't find two more different people Finn, Finola, she's known as Finn Donner, grew up in Hell's Kitchen uh, when Hell's Kitchen was really Hell's Kitchen. Today, Hell's Kitchen is highly gentrified. But in the 19th century, it was one of the world's uh, uh, most dangerous neighborhoods, dangerous slums. And so she's a survivor of of crime-ridden and tough streets. Her beloved companion, uh, Devorah Longstreet, is a product of high society who grew up in a Fifth Avenue mansion, but whose family disowned her when she took up with the love of her life with Finn Donner because it was not acceptable. So Devorah lost the love of her family as a result of her deep love for Finn Donner. That still happens, of course, today, though it's becoming, fortunately, a little less so, families uh, are getting more comfortable with their gay uh, sons and daughters, whereas in the 19th century, this was just not acceptable at all. So, so Dvorah loses her family, a terrible, terrible loss, and she was very close to her mother. In, in their minds, like in 1899, was it, did, do you find that there were a lot of gay couples that thought, or people that were gay, let's say, that hadn't even entered a relationship like that would it be in their minds to think about entering that kind of relationship moving in with someone and being married would they even think that sure there were um of course there were what was known as the boston marriages where women would move in together and they were just sort of and they you know they were clearly lesbian relationships um, but the society just sort of, since society assumed at that time that women were not nearly as sexual as men, they just assumed that they were two old spinsters who moved in together. And even though in the back of everyone's minds they knew it was a lesbian relationship, they were able to accept it as two old spinsters who just moved in together. Um, and these were called Boston marriages. Um, now, as far as the men, yes, there were men, gay men, who also lived together, but they were considered, you know, confirmed bachelors. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there were all kinds of, you know, pasted over labels for these kinds of, of marital uh, relationships. But, of course, uh, nothing has changed in thousands of years. People fall in love and they want to spend their lives together. How they did it is, it, uh, and, and do it today is what's changed. But the fact of them doing it has not changed. Just the labels have changed. And, of course, now we have, um, uh, we have marriage equality where we're actually able to get married. 
1899 or in Cantor Gold's time of the 1950s, they were not able to marry. But they, nevertheless, people fell in love and they entered into these domestic relationships. Absolutely. They just put a different face on it for the public. What a lot of people don't understand, too, is like the idea of identifying as a gay person. That I mean, mm-hmm. Oscar Wilde didn't identify as a gay person. Like the idea of having an identity that, and you know, uh, sure, they behaved and, um, you know, had domestic partnerships and, and all this stuff went on. But the sort of idea of it being an identity <laughs> is not something that comes on until it comes along until much later. And so, you know, even casting stuff back, I mean, of course, that's what they were, but it's just, it's fascinating. It's just, um, you know, how time, how much, honestly, in a relatively short period of time, things have changed. Well, but John, actually, there were people who identified as homosexual. I just, um, uh, I write a historical headliners column for the Letters from Camp Rehoboth, uh, Delaware newspaper, once a month. And the most recent article that's coming up, or it may already be out, is about a fellow named Richard uh, Nugent, who was an African-American intellectual writer and dancer and creative artist during the Harlem Renaissance. And we know that a number of the Harlem Renaissance luminaries uh, were gay, uh, both the men and the women. But they, it, and it was an open secret, but it was still treated as a secret and sort of kept among themselves. Whereas Nugent said, uh-uh, and he absolutely came out. He wrote in one of his stories, he has his main character say, I am a homosexual and I, you know, I refuse to live in the closet. And this is in the 1930s. So there were people who did identify as gay um, way back when. I mean, look at Gertrude Stein. <laughs> she and Alice said, yeah, this is it. Take it or leave it. I was thinking more turn of the century, though. We were, once we start moving into the century, you start getting more. A little bit more, yeah. 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 So when you get into the murder, the, the murder mystery here, mm-hmm. um, how, how, do you, how do you come up with this? This is like a, uh, a woman who's been viciously murdered. Mm-hmm. you know, throat cut and all that. Do you do you think about how you write a murder or a violence in your books? You know, crime writing is an interesting <laughs> profession. <laughs> we, unlike people who write romances and so on, although maybe there's death in romances, I don't I don't know. But in, in crime writing, we have to think of ways to do people in. <laughs> it's a very interesting way to spend an afternoon when you're plotting a book. And um, so there you are thinking of how the murder took place. Now, the murders have to be, to my way of thinking, part of the narrative. And by that, I mean, it can't just be, the, the method of murder can't just be random. It has to fit the whole narrative arc of the story. So in this particular case, uh, and we know early on from the prologue that the woman's throat was cut, um, that, you know, uh, that was a sort of 19th century thing to do. (laughs) So, you know, a lot of the ways that crime writers determine the murder is how would a murder be done in the context of this story? Um, And so, yes, I do think about how the murder is done. And as I say, that's a very interesting way to spend an afternoon. How am I going to, you know, eviscerate someone or shoot yeah. them or whatever? Yeah. <laughs> yep. You yep. probably acted out with the neighbors. Uh, 
we won't talk about that. See, we story. Do you ever find uh, when you're doing this, putting this together, this kind of a case from back then, and you're doing the research and going through papers and different areas to try and find out things, do you, do you ever come across things that totally surprise you that you're just totally unaware of and go, oh, my God, I didn't realize that went on? Oh, sure. Um, when times are, you know, times before our own, the people who lived in those times had to had to navigate their own day-to-day existence in ways that are different than ours. Um, in some ways, they're the same. You know, people people get up in the morning and then proceed with their day. But each era presents its own uh, reality of how you navigate their day. So, yeah, sometimes I run across stuff that um, uh, I can't think of anything offhand, but I know that I am sometimes surprised at the way people navigate their day at, at different at different periods of time, saying, hey, well, why would they do that? And you realize they had no choice. It's because that was the way life was. So at the end of the day, when, when you do something like this, a, a book like this, and you kind of get through it, do you find that it changes who you are as a writer? Oh, boy, what a question. Hmm. Does it change who I am as a writer? I think so. And I think the change comes not so much in altering who I am, but in enlarging who I am, because I've had to, in my research, learn how people lived at that time. But as, as both of you know, as writers, in order to write truthfully, you have to somehow internalize those experiences and then be able to write from their emotional truth, their emotional point of view, to, to write through the characters, not through yourself, but through the characters. Um, so as a writer, I experience other people's lives and other people's loves and other people's lives and deaths and hardships and joys in ways that my 21st century life or just my personal life uh, as me would never experience. It would never occur to me to do some of the things that my characters do. So when I finish a book or even as I'm writing it, I may not be changed as a person, but as a writer, I'm enlarged. And I guess as a person, I'm enlarged, too, after, yeah, after thinking about it, because I've experienced something that I've never experienced before. Yeah, you just killed someone. <laughs> There's, well, I do that with each book <laughs> and each short story. Well, sometimes that can be therapeutic, though, depending on who the victim is. <laughs> oh, yes, yeah. absolutely. I had to, a few years ago, um, I was invited to write a novella for Down and Out Books, for their Guns and Tacos series. And um, uh, and the only requirements were it had to take place in Chicago and it had to involve buying a weapon from this taco truck. After that, you were free to do whatever you want. Well, I was going through some stuff at the time that uh, will remain just within my brain. <laughs> but I had to, I had to write this novella well, I worked out stuff that I was going through, and I made the protagonist a professional, who was gay, by the way. She was a professional assassin who also had very serious mother issues. <laughs> and she goes through the night in Chicago killing off an awful lot of people. Boy, did that feel good. <laughs> <laughs> So, yes, John, that was the most therapeutic book I have ever written. 
because each one of those people that the character killed off represented somebody in my life who was really annoying me. <laughs> uh -oh. <laughs> it was making life very difficult at the time. <laughs> you know, I um, this is sort of coming from my uh, perspective as a historical fiction writer myself, and something that I struggle with sometimes is, you know, I have a great sort of, um, I guess you would call it nostalgia for, I guess, time that I didn't live in, right? So I write about the 1950s and 40s. Beautifully, too, I might add. Oh, th thanks, Anne. <laughs> I um, love the savage kind. Oh, yum, delicious. I, I, I really love that. I love the feel of the time period. I love the outfits. I love mm -hmm. even the, the music, the film, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm also kind of aware that there's a little danger of being overly nostalgic about a time period, particularly, you know, as, as I know you do, all the horrific things going on. Do you ever feel that sort of tension when you're writing? Like you don't want, you don't want to wear the rose tinted glasses, but there are some things that feel kind of rosy to you. <laughs> oh, absolutely. In Crime of Secrets, for instance, um, I'm, I'm writing about some very gritty and difficult uh, circumstances for a number of people. On the other hand, there was also, um, as we see through the life of Finn and Devorah, there was also a kind of gentility to life that we've lost in a way. There was a formality of life, just the way you went out to the street. Uh, you didn't go out in you know, sandals and cut off jeans. Uh, you dressed because it was the respectful thing to do for yourself and also the way you presented to other people. There was a gentility to uh, the life of the street, which we've lost. So, yes, there's the rose-colored glasses on the one hand. I miss that gentility. I thoroughly enjoyed whirling around in it while I was writing the book. But it was tempered by the places, the rougher places the couple had to go in order to solve the murder. And, of course, Finn's background, which she brings to her relationship with, with Devorah and also her, her, her survival skills of the streets. She, it enables her to get into places where Devorah really can't in solving the murder. So it's both. There is the road. There, there is the rose-tinted glasses, and and of course the clothing. I love dressing my characters yeah. in these wonderful clothing. You know, um, all these. You know, I think very hard about what my characters are wearing, which is a. a it's, it, it's also a wonderful way to spend an afternoon. Uh, in the research for that, going online or, or looking at old-fashioned uh, books and so on, uh, and and dressing my characters. Is just delicious. I really do enjoy doing that. Absolutely, and it also contributes to the story. What they wear then, as now, tells a lot about the characters. What would this person wear? Yeah, I think that's really true. I, I, I echo. I, I love. Uh, I love dressing my characters. Um, you know, I think it's a gay thing for us, John. It probably is. We like we like good style. What can we say? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, but it does say a lot about character too. I'm always a little disappointed. Yeah. I was particularly a lot of contemporary fiction that they don't take more care. Although I do think I agree with you. We do uh, dress in a more relaxed way now. Still, choices are always interesting, even if they are. Mm -hmm. And then to, I feel like I don't know what a character generally is looks like and generally is wearing always. Um, 
bothers me. I know there are a lot of other readers and writers who can't stand over too much description, so I'm, I'm purely, that's my taste coming out. But, you know, I just like it because it does add to character. Um, Absolutely. And there's ways of describing what the character's wearing without going into, you know, Dickinson, Dickensian. Right, big description. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know. You know, and we strive for that kind of clarity. I mean, writing a book that takes place in the late 19th century was a challenge um, in terms of form and language. When I write the Kendrick Gold books taking place in the 1950s, the language is somewhat different than it is today, but it's similar. But there's a different criminal slang and so on uh, and sort of a jazz to it, which I enjoy writing. But 19th century language is far more formal. But I couldn't write it in, in absolute 19th century terms because we don't, the reader, the modern reader, the 21st century reader doesn't have the patience to wade through quite all the description that 19th century literature had. So I had to find that balance between a 19th century tonality and feeling and vocabulary uh, and yet make it accessible to a 21st century reader. And the way that, I, the way that it turned out, it turned out to be in rhythm, um, though I had to be very careful not to use 21st century idioms. You know, they're all 19th century idioms. But the rhythm is actually what tells the tale uh, and, and gives the feeling for the time in that people spoke in a different rhythm, and that was my, my way into getting the feel for 19th century speech without actually resorting to Charles Dickens' length <laughs> of <So> descriptive <laughs> term, yeah. Yeah, it's a trick. You can't, because you are writing for a contemporary audience, so there's like this sort of happy in-between space where you honor the past but don't write just like it. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, it's, it was kind of fun to, to take those 19th century idioms and make them accessible to the 21st century ear. And, I, you know, I really did enjoy finding a new formality in language, um, I, I really liked that a lot. It brought me back into the music of the English language, which the Crime of Secrets employs quite a bit. Linguistically, it's, it's a very musical book, I think. I know, since I wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> it is. I've read it. It's, it's beautiful. I th and I, I think that's one of Thank the, you. the real joys of, of, of reading um, is, is when you can sort of dip into you know, different sort of style, styles that sort of identify a time period or have that quality. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that there's a lot, there's sort of a joy as a reader, you know. Um, I mean, I'll say that, you know, it, there's a joy if you're, if you read widely. I think not everyone does, and that's mm -hmm. you know, just glad they're reading. It doesn't matter to me. But, um, right. But I really love personally, like you know, yeah, living in a little, a little bit of nineteenth-century prose. Perhaps not Dickens or, or James, but um, but it's a it's a different thing, right? It's a different right. Thing. But when you know, I I really enjoyed the Savage Kind immensely, and in terms of language, you really had it. I mean, just through the language, without being without telling us what the girls were wearing, I kind of felt. The, you know, the, the heavy woolen coat in the rain and, you know, you could smell the, the wool and, and you just did that with language. And I, that's so important to be able to convey a time through the use of language. And I do strive to do that in my, in my books. Even in my contemporary short stories, still the language reflects today. It reflects this moment. 
Um, but there is a music in English that I try and plug into in whatever time period I'm, I'm writing, writing in. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. I, um, I, I care a lot about language and, um, you know, I just do. I declare myself that way. Not every, <laughs> not every writer does. And that's fine. Not every reader does. And that's fine too. Um, but, but I, you know, John, I think I like it's it. not to, not to interrupt you, but I think it's very important for us as crime writers. Um, because the language of crime, and we're writing about terrible things in a way, you know, the killing of people or other kinds of crimes, but, you know, terrible dark things. Um, and where do you find the language for that? Uh, especially in historical, uh, uh, books, but even in contemporary stories, that you, you have to be able to tell a story using the appropriate language for the story. But then you have to find language that's appropriate to the crime. I mean, you know, how do you describe murder? What does a body look like when it's been shot or stabbed or cut or, you know, poisoned or whatever? And, you know, there's language that instead of being clinical, you can say a person's, you know, particular hemorrhaging made their eyes red, you know, and, and be very clinical about it. But that doesn't give the reader a sense of the horror of the death. So you have to find, to me, I feel like I have to find language that conveys what, conveys what the result of a murder, you know, what happens to a human body when it's been assaulted like, or violated like this. Well, it's, it's infused with human emotion, right? You're drawing out. Exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. I think, I think uh, you can just go out and do it. <laughs> Well, that's a little too direct. What makes you now. think we have it? <laughs> yeah, well, this is what I mean. You know, that's the beauty of writing. I have feel, a, a, see a, the a, dead a, body. A little, a little disclaimer here. No, I have not killed anybody. Your readers need to know if any, if any law enforcement is listening. I have never killed anybody except in my books. <laughs> okay, whatever you say. <laughs> I did, however, work as many people know. When I was uh, living in San Francisco and I was doing art projects out there for my former, my former life, I did for a period of time work for a private investigator. So I did see crime, which is why I took the job in the first place, writing reports for a private investigations firm. And so, no, I haven't killed anybody, but I, <laughs> but I did become acquainted with how the criminal system, uh, legal system works or actually doesn't work. Uh, and so on. So while I have not got, gone out and committed a crime, I have seen the mechanics of it. So that does give me some insight into um, into writing crime stories. Sure, yeah. Which I suppose you know there are people who who have been policemen, or and then you know they they go out and write crime books because they have firsthand knowledge of it. Yeah. And that yeah. you know my time with the private investigations firm has been helpful. In in seeing people who are victims of crime or who commit crime, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I was an exotic dancer and a stripper, so that's where I get mine from. Yeah, lots of lots of history there, right? And yeah, I I wasn't going to tell Al, but you know, <laughs> you've let the cat out of the bag now. Gosh. Yeah, I was one of the first <laughs> male exotic dancers back, and then the cat or the bag both in 1940. <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, anyway, so listen now. The book is out now. It came out July fourth. Um, mm-hmm. We recommend people get it now. Um, how do people find you? Like uh, besides, you know, Paris and 
nice cafes. <laughs> like, where do where do people find you? Do you have social media? Do you have website? Um, sure. I'm. Um, I have this. <laughs> I have this. Um, I don't have a website presence. I have this. Uh, 15 or 10 or 15 year under development website. So, don't, <laughs> so don't worry about that. But I, I am on Facebook, just Ann Aptaker or Ann Aptaker author. Um, uh, I am on Instagram. You can find me there. I was on Twitter, but as so many people are doing, I escaped Twitter. I just don't feel comfortable there these days. Uh, X, they're calling it now, which makes it even more of a reason to <laughs> jump ship from, from there. Um, uh, so yes, you can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Instagram. Well, time to get on TikTok um, because if you're off of tw- Twitter, get on. Yeah, I'm, I am thinking about, I'm looking into TikTok. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm looking into threads. Um, but I haven't, I haven't done that yet in part because just keeping up with my Facebook, my two Facebook pages and Instagram, um, plus all the other things in life I have to do. Just how many social media distractions can I handle in this life? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But we'll see. I, I think TikTok may be uh, in my future. Uh, we'll see. Um, I am look. I will be looking into it. Uh, I think it's it's probably a good place for uh, my books to be represented. Yeah. But we'll see. Yeah. One one step at a time. That's well, perfectly yeah. fine. You know, have a good time mm-hmm. there. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> okay, the book, A Crime of Secrets, and it's a Donner mm-hmm. and Longstreet mystery. It's book one, and Aptaker, thank you for being on the show. And thank you for having me, and thank you, John and Alan, for this absolutely fun discussion of times past and crime. Yes, nice hand. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, All shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, All shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.